many of you have never heard. How, how many of you are uh, of Irish descent? Anybody of Irish descent? Why would you admit that? That's, okay. That, I just wanted to know that. <laughs> how many German-Americans do we have here? Yeah, see, there are more German-Americans than there are any other group. That means, as proud as we are of being German-Americans, our ancestors all wanted out. You realize that? I mean, they, they wanted out of Germany. And, uh, and one, of the, one of the places that is famous in Germany is Augsburg. Um, and it's, it's still... a um, place that, that is famous for the, its uh, religious significance in history. Um, uh, the Lutherans, there's Augsburg Press, and there's all kinds of... Augsburg's a big name. Um, Augsburg has a, an important place in Baptist history, um, and one of those little names that that pastor's talking about is Hans <coughs> Denk. I don't know if I'm putting the right... But, uh, and you've got some stuff on... on things, you right? mentioned Augsburg. At the, at the time of the Reformation period, it's estimated that there, in Augsburg alone, that there were 1,100 Anabaptists meeting in, in Augsburg alone, in spite of the threat of persecution. Again, that was there. And one of the men that God mightily used was... Uh, John Denk, and he was a very um, gifted writer. And, and what you're going to see throughout history, um, how many of you have heard the statement, the pen is mightier than the sword? And throughout history, that is, that is evident. And uh, that ought to speak to us that we need to learn how to communicate. Because not only verbally, but we need to learn how to, to write things. And uh, just diverting a little bit, if it, if it was ever evident, it was evident when several of us were talking to, to Senator Keith Kreiman on Monday. And um, we, need to, we need to learn to clearly um, enunciate and spell out our beliefs in a logical method, not just to say the Bible says this. I mean, I'm not talking just senators, but people don't care what the Bible says. But um, the Bible is reasonable, too. And um, we need to learn to spell these things out. But John Denk was, a, was very gifted in this area. And as a powerful uh, as he was with his pen, his preaching was just as powerful. And he would flee from city to city, and in going to the city, very similar to the Apostle Paul, he would go and debate the Lutheran ministers. He would translate scriptures and give them into the hands of the people, and... Midst all the persecution, John Denk ended up dying a natural death in his 30s just because he was completely worn out from the labors, from the pressures of fleeing. And um, they were really hunted as, as, um, as animals, so to speak. 
And uh, he was one of the rare ones that in 1527 died a natural death, but it was because of the pressures of life. And in, in 1529, Germany really turned up the heat to stamp out all Anabaptists. Uh, they demanded that the Anabaptists be put to death by fire or sword without a trial. And all the people who did not have their infants baptized were treated as Anabaptists, whether they were or not, if they just didn't have their infants baptized. And houses were searched. Anyone that was hiding in Anabaptist, their property would be confiscated. And uh, they renewed this decree 25 years later. And uh, they really were treated with unusual torture, uh, as we said, hunted like wild animals, almost for sport. And the names of all those that were martyred at this time, only God knows who they were. The records are not there. But that's what happened in Germany. As a result of that, um, many of them fled to the Netherlands, to, to France, to Switzerland. And um, God's work you know, he uses the devices of the wicked to praise him. Were it not for persecution in the first century, the gospel wouldn't have spread like it did. Were it not for persecution here, it wouldn't have spread like it did. Were it not for persecution, um, America wouldn't be what it is today. So, um, John Denk is one name that we do have some record of, but... The neat thing, heaven is going to reveal those that were faithful and how God used them. I want you to go a couple slides here, just uh, <coughs> if you can. All right, we're, you, you know, okay, the bottom circle is Switzerland, which we're going to go to now. But above there, you see that there's a whole bunch of little countries. That's what's today Germany. Um, Germany didn't become a country until um, 1871, 1872, something like that. And so when we're talking about, all, they, they, were, they were a people who spoke one language. They spoke German, high German, low German. But they didn't, uh, <clears throat> they didn't have a German uh, a nation. There was Saxony and there was um, Bavaria and, and Holstein and, and all these different ones. Down into Switzerland becomes the area where we have a huge Reformation area. Um, we've already talked about Zwingli in, in Zurich. Um, but there was another guy whose, whose name is one of the most well-known and I'd say revered names in, in uh, the history of, of religion and certainly Western Western history, John Calvin. Um, and, and like I said, John Calvin, how, how many of you have heard of John Calvin? Just heard, okay, everybody's heard of John Calvin. Exactly. Um, there's so many names that we can say that nobody's heard of, and everybody's heard of John Calvin. Um, I grew up Presbyterian, and I grew up uh, revering John Calvin. John Calvin was, you know, was really something. The more that I read of the theology of John Calvin, the more dangerous I think John Calvin was. Uh, we, we look back at some of these people who, who had um, 
our forefathers put to death and we think, oh, okay. A lot of the stuff that John Calvin did has had an effect upon our churches hundreds of years later. Uh, so, that said, see, I, I lay it out and I I'd say... I'd be curious, what are some of, when you hear John Calvin, what comes to your mind? Calvin Klein. Okay, I ask a straightforward question and... <laughs> Good old John Calvin Klein. Okay. Okay. Anything else that comes to mind? All right. Okay. Um, you were going to ask a question. Well, I, my question is, why is Calvin dangerous? Um, so. You know, to back up, you think, why, does, why did Calvin have such a, a far-reaching impact, even to today? And, um, and again, it comes back, to his writings, the Calvin Institutes. He, he spent a lot of time recording these things. And basically, they can be summed up in what is known as TULIP. And I think Josh has that here. And um, the basic tenets of Calvinism. And, you know, people spend, spend their... Um, in evangelical circles, they spend their lifetime, many of them, identifying which ones of these do I agree with and which ones do I not. Are you a five-point Calvinist, meaning you agree with all the tulips? And, um, or are you a four-and-a-half-point or a three-point? And in seminaries, they love to just beat these things to death. And, um, and basically, the tulip, it begins with the total depravity of man. And we're not going to go into detail on all of these, but uh, understanding that man cannot save himself, that man is born in sin, that we are, are helpless in and of ourselves, all right? The next one is the you is... Unconditional election, that unconditionally God has elected certain people and uh, depending on whether they're Calvinist or as mentioned earlier, hyper-Calvinist or uh, there's varying degrees here, um, that God, depending on your stance, God chose certain people to go to heaven and he chose certain people to go to hell. And um, if you're elected, you're lucky, and if you're not, you're out, all right? And um, <clears throat> the Bible does teach election, and the Bible teaches whosoever will. And it shows us that God's mind is far beyond our mind, all right? 
And in our minds, as we've talked about it before, um, you can't put the two together, but the two are together. And he's given us a, a will. Yes. What about, exactly, what about the fact that God, to God, there is no end or beginning. He's timeless. I mean, how do you put that in our thinking, you know? It's not like God knows the future. He is the future. He's there already. It's, I mean, you know, it, needless to say, God knows everyone that will, will respond and we're not going to get into a long discussion on this today. The L is limited atonement, that Christ only died for the elect. That His blood that was shed, and we'll, tonight we'll be talking about the blood, but um, His blood that was shed was only shed for the elect. What, what verse would you respond to that? Okay, all right. Any other verse? For God so loved the the elect, the elect. And seriously, what they start doing is well. In this case, world doesn't really mean world, and so then you start changing things, and. Um, Titus 2, it says, The grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men. And um, so, limited atonement. The I is irresistible grace. That God brings His grace to you and you cannot resist it. If you are an elect person, I don't care how deep you dig your heels in, He is going to drag you to Christ and uh, you will become a child of God. It's irresistible. And then the last one is the perseverance of the saints. Uh, Jerry mentioned the aspect of the security of the believer, that, that a true saint, a, a child of God, will persevere, and um, their faith will remain strong, and so on. Now, these are the basic tenets of Kelvin, Without, I mean, needless to say, there's, there's problems that are there. And this has really fostered um, Reformed theology, which really today is, is um, picking up speed. Um, several weeks ago, we handed out a sheet that had four columns the church history and worldview, and I'll, I'll make some of these, um, make some more copies and put them on the back. But without going into detail and redoing this, it, it spells out a pagan worldview. It spells out the Pauline worldview, the biblical worldview. Then the Augustinian worldview, which Augustinian, Augustine, was a Roman Catholic priest and that we've already looked at. And then it spells out Calvinism worldview. And as you go down through in Augustinian and Calvin, there are 11 points here 
And, and they match up right across the board. And you will find even Reformed theologians that said of Calvin, it is merely a revival of an Augustinian worldview with some minor changes. Now, going back to our, our Baptist history, when the Anabaptists saw Luther take his stand and Zwingli and Calvin, they were really instrumental in helping to encourage these people because they thought, this is going to be very helpful. This is good. They're, they're breaking from the mother church. They're, they're standing on some biblical principles. And they really thought, these people are becoming like-minded. But they were sadly disappointed. Because the Reformed churches, although they did make steps away from some of the heirs of um, Catholicism, they kept some of the basic foundational heirs of the Roman Catholic Church. And one of them was the union, and we keep coming back to this, was the union between church and state. And that's why they make such a a big thing about infants being baptized because um, that not only brings them into the church, it makes them a member of the state, a citizen of the state. And um, they clearly identified with that. Uh, Calvin, just to go back and give you a little history, he was a Frenchman who was studying in the priesthood and... um, and came to realize some of the, the teachings of the Bible didn't match up with, with what was in Scripture. Encouraged by the work of Luther, um, he came out in his church and he said, the Roman Catholic Church is wrong in this area and this area. And they, he thought they would respond favorably. They were upset and they ran him out and he fled to Switzerland. And in Switzerland, he met a man by the name of John Farrell, and he kind of discipled him in in the um, Reformation ways. And eventually, to make a long story short, John Calvin came to Geneva, and they took over Geneva. Literally, they took over the government. They ran the government. It was not a place that was favorable To Baptists, they persecuted those that believed like we do, that didn't believe like them. So here you had, in Geneva, they had the Reformed churches, and they were persecuting Roman Catholics and anybody that didn't believe like them. And see, what was happening in this period, there were battles for cities. Is this going to be a Roman Catholic city, or a Lutheran city, or a Presbyterian city? And... um, and because of their strong ties with church and state, they established these. And, and uh, in Geneva, John Calvin was the godfather, so to speak. And uh, It was also a time of feudalism where people didn't get to get up and move. I mean, think about if, if this happened in, in Lucas County or Wayne County. I mean, it's easy for us to go, well, why didn't these people just uh, up and move? Well, first of all, do you want to just up and move? 
you know, most of us don't want to do that. Don't want to. We, we'd rather stay and fight for what's ours. First of all, but second of all, we were in an age of feudalism where you didn't just get up and move. You were tied to the land. There was nothing, nothing for you to go someplace else. Only a handful of people had a trade that could move from place to place. They were serfs that were literally tied. They could not leave their manners. And so when these type of things happened to them, they had no choice. And, and in understanding the limitations that they had there, plus the limitations of access to the Word of God. Remember, the press was just new, and, and so they couldn't go to their Dollar General or Barnes & Noble and buy a Bible. And, and so, it, to me, again, it's, it's a testimony of God's grace that truth kept marching on. As limited, as limited as their access to the Word of God was, as severe as they were persecuted and, and sought to be stamped out, um, truth continued to, to um, march on. But you ask, why, why is this so dangerous Today, I, I really believe the, the dangers are represented in when you start modifying Scripture. Reformed theologians believe now the church has replaced Israel, that Israel is no longer in God's program at all. It's not a part of God's program. They, you'll find varying degrees on this, but they believe that there will be a revival among churches and we will set up a thousand-year reign where righteousness will rule in this world and then Jesus Christ will come back. It, it's called post-millennialism. Um, many of them believe that all, that all that Revelation, all of Revelation has already taken place, that it was fulfilled in 70 A.D., and um, and so <clears throat> there's a number of there's a number of problems, and I I'll make copies of this, but I'd encourage you to pick this up and and look at the comparisons between the Pauline worldview, the Augustinian, and the Calvin's worldview, which today is Reformed theologians. Now, let me say there are some really good people that are Reformed theologians, and they'll write some good things, but they, they have a lot of good. But if you're off in an area, it's eventually going to show itself. And um, many of them believe, um, as we said, that the church has replaced Israel. Israel is no longer in existence. And they really believe that America is where we're supposed to set up this kingdom. Um, it doesn't look very good for it right now. You know, we're not moving the right direction if you have that theology. And, and yet at the same time, it, it's basically a theocracy that they're trying to push after. And again, our forefathers and our... Baptist uh, heritage shows they never wanted a theocracy. They wanted people to have the liberty 
to worship God as they choose. One of the Baptist distinctives is soul liberty. So, there's a number of dangers, um, and yet, it all springs from not breaking completely with the mother church and some of the things they tied to. Well, two thoughts on it. One of them, Malcolm mentioned the pre-knowing thing. It's, it is one of those mind-boggling things out there. God knows everything. God knows the future. So God knows whether or not your child is going to accept Christ. He knows it. So does that make it a done deal? So does that mean that that child has the free will to do that, to, to accept Christ down the line? And there's such a fine line between the pre-knowing and the predestination that it's your de- you know, you know, it's your, your destiny to be at this point. And, and that is, it's a, it is a mind-boggling thing of knowing, knowing the future. And, and it causes a, a, a lot of problems. But you know, the, this Reformed theology of, of the church is Israel now creeps in. It, it, it is so subtle. And it sounds so nice. Uh, a few years ago, um, uh, the National Day of Prayer was a big thing for like one year. I mean, and, and they have it every year, but one year it was a really big thing. I think Shirley Dobson was in charge of it. She still is. And uh, and the verse that they were quoting was out of I think Second Chronicles. Help me out. Uh, Seven fourteen, which says, "If my people, which are called by my name, humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways." Then I'll heal their land and forgive their sins. By golly, that sounds great for America. If my people who are called by my name will do this, I will heal their land. That will heal America. It wasn't written to Americans. It wasn't written to the church. It was written to Israel. That was not a promise made to us. Now, it sounds like a great promise. It sounds like something that, oh boy, that us <coughs> jump on this. And we use that as our national our national day of prayer verse. That was, our, that was the promise that we all jumped on. That wasn't promise made to us. You know, as like me telling you know, Marshall, hey, I'm going to take you to a Royals game. And then Gina says, well, you never took me to the Royals game. I didn't promise Gina to go to the Royals game. I promised Marshall to go to the Royals game. But you're fair, aren't you? <laughs> and that's what we say, isn't it? Well, if God's going to be fair about it, I never bought Marshall a Barbie either. (laughs) (laughs) Now, the thing is, you know, needless to say, we need to pray. We need to humble ourselves. We need to repent of our sin. We need to turn from our sin. But we really get an arrogant attitude that God is, God owes America something because we're America. I mean, we were founded on biblical principles. I really believe God has allowed mankind to have every form of government to remove every excuse that we can ever say that no man is ever going to say, God, if you would have just let us start a a country built on biblical principles, it would have lasted. It's not going to. It isn't lasting. 
And the only kingdom that's going to last is God's kingdom. But, um, you know, in, in understanding um, these issues, it's important for us to realize, and we were talking about this yesterday on the way to Atumwa, is our, our citizenship is in heaven. We are citizens of America. And we need to do what we can to be the light that we can but it shouldn't drive us to um, despair to the point of being dis- disabled to function as a Christian. These people that we're talking about, they didn't have a homeland, really. They, their citizenship was heaven. We have been really spoiled in America Uh, Our nation has always been favorable to Christians. It's always been a haven. And and now as we start seeing some of that not coming, you know, this isn't right. Well, you're right, it may not be right. It's not constitutional. Well, we haven't been going by the Constitution for a long time. And, um, you know, that doesn't mean you just give up. But at the same time... We're not here to save people to our political thinking. We're here to be a light to help them become citizens of heaven. And that's what's going to make a difference. And, you know, you can't mix infant baptism in with that. See, the Reformed theologians uh, liken infant baptism as an identity that we've, we've, dedi- we've set aside this baby to God. So, uh, patriarchal salvation. Uh, as a father, I want this child to be saved, so I'm set a- it is now set aside for God. Well, um, every child is going to decide for themselves what they will receive as truth and who they will acknowledge as the Lord of their life. And, um, you know, it's not by infant baptism. It's not by a state church. It's not by a church. It's by the truth. Moving on? Go ahead. All right. This is my next Any one. questions? Of course not. It's so simple, Calvin. <laughs> <laughs> Go to the next one. Henry VIII. Okay, and uh, Henry VIII came along in the late 1400s and was king of uh, the United Kingdom in the the early 1500s. What's Henry VIII famous for? Two things. (laughs) Most famous for what? Women, his wives, okay? Six wives. Um, Henry VIII was, was uh, was, was a Catholic, grew up Catholic. Uh, married um, uh, married Catherine of Spain uh, when she was 12, and uh, when you're married to a 12 year old, other women look pretty good to you, I suppose. And uh, wasn't too long, and he he became infatuated with other women, specifically Anne Boleyn, and um, he wanted to divorce Catherine, wanted to marry uh, Anne Boleyn, and and uh, the Pope said, no, you can't do that. Now. The Pope 
we can go, yeah, how about that? Good job, Pope. Uh, probably did that more for uh, political reasons of keeping Catholicism and, and the, the uh, connection with Spain strong uh, there. But, um, but uh, as a result, he said, okay, fine, we'll just won't be Catholic anymore, and we're going to start our own Church of England, the Anglican Church, which was very, very, very much like the Catholic Church. I mean, it was, there was like no difference, uh, except for the Pope wasn't in charge of it. And uh, instead, the King of England, the defender of the faith, would be. And so Henry put himself in charge of the church and granted himself a divorce and, and, uh, and eventually uh, went on. And, and he didn't even, even after that, he didn't divorce all his wives. He had some of them executed and, and so forth. But... Um, Anyway, uh, ends, ends up starting the Church of England, which is still, you know, the main church in the United Kingdom. Um, but that's a, do you want anything else about him? Because he's he's pretty dull other than that. Herman and the Hermits had the best song about him. That was it. Beyond that, it was okay. Moving on, let's go on. But the English have always had dissenters. Um, among and sometimes they throw them in jail. Sometimes they kill them, and but sometimes they let them let them go. Um, John Bunyan is probably one of the most famous English Baptists, uh, and and very very famous, of course, for writing Pilgrim's Progress. Who's who's read Pilgrim's Progress? You know that next besides the Bible, it is the most uh, it's the greatest selling book in history. Only the Bible is sold, sold more, and it's obviously then the most uh, fiction novel, the, the highest sold and most read book <coughs> in history besides the Bible, um, which he wrote in the uh, 1600s while he was in jail. Uh, had a little time on his hands. In the Why was he in jail? Why was he in jail? Because he was preaching without a license. And it's not like the government didn't like, you know, didn't like him especially. He said, here, here's your license and you can go preach. And he said, I am not going to take a license to preach from the government. Um, and Why? Because he believed in separation of church and state. But I'll put you on the spot. Don't you have a license from the government so you can uh, perform weddings and such? I'm ordained. I don't know. Are, are, are you a legal, uh, when, when you perform, a, uh, are you a, uh, I'm just asking. I may not be legal. Okay. <laughs> Who's, who was married by this guy? Anybody here is, uh, okay. Now, at, at, honestly, <laughs> this is a little thing that at a wedding, you're taught I'm duly invested by the powers of the state to pronounce you man and wife. I don't say that. I say, based on the powers of God, I pronounce you man and wife. Because we're seeing the state changes the rules on man and wife. And I'm toying with the idea of not marrying anybody. I'm, I'm toying with it. I'm thinking about it. I mean, nowhere does it say you have to have a preacher marry you, right? I hate it when he toys with ideas. <laughs> Um, in some countries, it's a, it's a civil ceremony, and then you'll have a spiritual ceremony. 
nowadays, we just have a ceremony. It's not spiritual and it's not civil. <laughs> Most marriages aren't either. <laughs> either. <laughs> Sad to say, you're right. But um, it, it is... This whole thing is creating new issues, not just for, is it county recorders or clerks or what, whoever issuing marriage license. It's going to create whole new issues for, for people that, that come. And, and we could say, um, we could vote as a church and say the only people we're going to marry are if they're church members. Well, that runs into a problem. What if? Someone grew up in this church and went away and they moved their membership someplace else and then they want to come back here and get married. Well, sorry, you can't. What I'm saying is there's a lot of things to think through here. And it all goes back to being tied in um, with the state. You know, some churches do not incorporate because they don't want any ties with the state. I, I would say if the state does not tell you to, anything to do, then that's fine if, you know, for a legal purpose. But the minute they start coming in and telling you what to do, that you can do this or you can't do this, and I think um, Bible colleges are running into issues with this. Um, in order to get veterans benefits and grants and so on, they've become accredited. And it means you had to have certain PhDs and twiddle-dees and all these educated to prove you're not a diploma mill. And, um, and so now they're starting to turn up the pressure here and saying, well... You know, yeah, you're a Bible college and you teach creation, but um, you may need to think about teaching the other side on this. And things like this happen incrementally. And um, these are issues that are being faced across the board, and we're going to be forced. John Bunyan drew a line, and I guess we'll pick up here next week. Sounds like a plan. And... Um, he drew a line and said, no, I can't take that. Sounds good. Heavenly Father, thank you for this time that we can be together.